picking up in season two with our book study of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City by award-winning author Matthew Desmond. An evicted Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius, Matthew Desmond, follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep your room, keep a roof over their heads. Held as wrenching and revelatory, living in unsettling. In this brilliant, heartbreaking book, Matthew Desmond takes us into the poorest neighborhoods of Milwaukee to tell the story of eight families on the edge. Arlene is a single mother trying to raise her two sons on the $20 a month she has left after paying for a rundown apartment. Scott is a gentle nurse consumed by a heroin addiction. Lamar, a man with no legs in a neighborhood full of boys to look after, tries to work his way out of debt. Vanetta participates in a botched stick-up after, after her hours are cut. All are spending almost everything they have on rent, and all have fallen behind. Fates of these families are in the hands of two landlords. Sharina Tarver, a former school teacher turned inner city entrepreneur, and Tola Charney, who runs one of the worst trailer parks in Milwaukee. They loathe some of their tenants and are fond of others. But as Sharina puts it, love don't pay the bills. She moves to evict Arlene and her boys a few days before Christmas. Even in the most desolate areas of American cities, Evictions used to be rare, but today, most poor renting families are spending more than half of their income on housing, and eviction has become ordinary, especially for single mothers. In vivid, intimate prose, Desmond provides a ground-level view of one of the most urgent issues facing America today, as we see families forcing shelters, squalid apartments, or more dangerous neighborhoods. We bear witness to the human cost of America's vast inequality and to people's determination and intelligence in the face of hardship. Based on years of embedded field work and painstakingly gathered data, this masterful book transforms our understanding of extreme poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving a devastating, unique American problem. Its unforgettable scenes of hope and loss remind us of the centrality of home, without which nothing else is possible. Let us begin part one, rent. The business of owning the city. Before the city yielded to winter as cold and gray as mechanics wrench, before Arlene convinced Sharina Tarver to let her boys move to the 13th Street duplex, the inner city was crackling with life. It was early September and Milwaukee was enjoying an Indian summer. Music rolled into the streets from car speakers as children played on the sidewalks or sold water bottles by the freeway entrance. Grandmothers watched from porch chairs as bare-chested black boys laughingly made their way to the basketball courts. Sharina wound her way through the north side listening to R&B with her window down. Most middle-class Milwaukeeans zoomed past the inner city on the freeway. Landlords took the side streets, typically not in their Saab or Audi, but in their rent collector. Some oil-leaking, rusted-out van or truck that hauled around extension cords, ladders, maybe a loaded pistol, plumbing snakes, toolboxes, a can of mace, 
nail guns, and other necessities. Sharina usually left her lipstick red Camaro at home and visited tenants in a beige brown 1993 Chevy Suburban with 22-inch rims. The Suburban belonged to Quentin, Sharina's husband and business partner and property manager. He used a screwdriver to start it. Some white Milwaukeeans still referred to the north side as the core as they did in the 1960s. And if they ventured into it, they saw street after street of sagging duplexes, fading murals, 24-hour daycares, corner stores with wicked septic here signs. Once America's 11th largest city, Milwaukee's population has fallen below 600,000, down from over 740,000 in 1960. It showed abandoned projects, weedy lots where houses once stood, dotted the north side. A typical residential street had a few single-family homes owned by older folks who tended gardens and hung American flags. More duplexes or four-family apartment buildings with chipping paint and bedsheet curtains rented to struggling families and vacant plots and empty homes with boards drilled over their doors and windows. Sharina saw all this, but she saw something else too. Like other seasoned landlords, she knew who owned which multifamily, which church, which bar, which street, knew its different vastitudes of life, its shades, its moods, knew which blocks were hot and drug soap, which were stable and quiet. She knew the ghetto's value and how money could be made from property that looked worthless to people who didn't know any better. Petite with chestnut skin, Sharina wore a lightweight red and blue jacket that matched her pants, which matched her off-kilter NBA cap. She liked to laugh, a full open-mouthed hoot, sometimes catching your shoulder as to keep from falling. But as she turned off North Avenue on her way to pay a visit to tenants who lived near the intersection of 18th and Wright Streets, she slowed down and let out a heavy sigh. Evictions were a regular part of the business, but Lamar didn't have any legs. Sharina was not looking forward to evicting a man without legs. Damn. When Lamar first fell behind, Sharina didn't reach automatically for the eviction notice or shrug it off with Brumade about business being business. She hadn't been hauled. I'm going to have a hard time doing it, she told Quentin, when she could no longer ignore it. You know that, don't you? Sharina frowned. Quentin stayed quiet and let his wife say it. It's only fair. Sharina offered after a few silent moments of deliberation. I feel bad for the kids. Lamar's got them little boys in there, and I love Lamar, but love don't pay the bills. Sharina had a lot of bills. Mortgage payments, water charges, maintenance expenses, property taxes. Sometimes a major expense would come out of nowhere, a broken furnace, an unexpected bill from the city, and leave her close to broke until the first of the month. We don't have time to wait, Quentin said. While we waiting on his payment, the taxes are going up. The mortgage payments is growing up. There was no hedging in this business. When a tenant didn't pay her $500, her landlord lost $500. When that happened, landlords with mortgages dug into their savings or their income to make sure the bank didn't hand them a foreclosure notice. There were no euphemisms either, no downsizing, 
no quarterly losses. Landlords took the gains and losses directly. They saw the deprivation and the waste up close. Old timers like recalling their first big loss, their initial breaking in. The time a tenant tore down her own ceiling, took pictures and convinced that the court commissioner that it was a landlord's fault. The time an evicted couple stuffed rocks down the sinks and turned the water on full blast before moving out. Rookie landlords hardened or quit. Sharina nodded reassuringly and said almost to herself, I guess I got to stop feeling sorry for these people because nobody is feeling sorry for me. Last time I checked, the mortgage company still wanted their money. Sharina and Quentin had met years ago. On Fondeloke Avenue, Quentin pulled up beside Sharina at a red light. She had a gorgeous smile and the car stereo was turned up. He asked her to pull over. Sharina remembered Quentin being in a Daytona, but he had insisted it was a Regal. I ain't trying to pull nobody over in the, the Daytona, he said, feigning offense. Quentin was well manicured, built but not muscular, with curly hair and lots of jewelry, a thick chain and a thicker bracelet, rings. Sharina thought he looked like a dope dealer, but gave him her number anyway. Quentin called Sharina for three months before she agreed to let him take her out for ice cream. It took him another six years to marry her. When Quentin pulled Sharina over, she was a fourth grade teacher. She talked like a teacher, calling strangers honey and offering motherly advice or chiding. You know I'm fixing to fuss at you, she would say. If she sensed your attention starting to shift, she would touch your elbow or thigh to pull you back in. Four years after meeting Quentin, Sharina was happy with their relationship but bored at work. After eight years in the classroom, she quit and opened a daycare. But they shut it down on a tiny technicality, she remembered. So she went back to teaching. After her son from an early relationship started acting out, she began homeschooling and trying her hand at real estate. When people asked, why real estate? Sharina would reply with some talk about learned long-term residuals or property being the best investment out there. But there was more to it. Sharina shared something with other landlords, an unbinding confidence that she could make it on her own without a school or a company to fall back on, without a contract or a pension or a union. She had an understanding with the universe that she could strike out into nothing and through her own gumption and intelligence come back with a good living. Sharina had bought a home in 1999. When prices were low. Riding the housing boom a few years later, she refinanced and pulled out a $21,000 in equity. Six months later, she refinanced again, this time pulling $12,000. She used the cash to buy her first rental property, a two-unit duplex in the inner city where housing was cheapest. Rental profits, refinancing, and private real estate investors offering high-interest loans helped her buy more. She learned that the rental population comprised some upper and middle class households who rent out of preference or circumstance, some young and transient people, most of the city's poor who were excluded both from home ownership and public housing. Landlords operating in different neighborhoods, typically clustering their properties in a central concentrated area. In a segregated city, this meant that the landlords focused on housing certain kinds of people, white ones or black ones, poor families or college students. 
Sharina decided to specialize in running to black people. Four years later, she owned 36 units, all in the inner city, and took to carrying a pair of cell phones with backup batteries, reading Forbes, running off in space, and accepting appointments from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Quentin quit his job and started working as Sharina's property manager and buying buildings of his own. Sharina started a credit repair business and an investment business. She purchased two 15-passenger vans and started Prisoner Connections LLC, which for $25 to $50 a seat transported girlfriends and mothers and children to visit their incarcerated loved ones upstate. Sharina had found her calling, Inner City Entrepreneur. Now, hold on, family. I'm not knocking ever anyone's hustle. I'm not knocking anyone's grind. I'm not knocking. And in many ways, I applaud Sharina and Quentin for what they're doing. I applaud them for making their money. And it's going to be interesting as we go deeper in this book, man, to see what type of people Sharina and Quentin really are. Now, with my early impressions of just reading these couple pages, I can simply say that I believe Sharina and Quentin are predators. All of their businesses are built upon people who are down in their luck, really in need of a hand up, and they're capitalizing on that. Now, that's the way capitalism works, we understand. But even knowing that's how capitalism works, that doesn't make me look at capitalists and people who participate in those type of things who capitalize on the dysfunction, on the downtrodden, the poor, the brokenhearted, or the broke with glee and happiness. In many instances, in most instances, family, I'll be honest with you, I think these people are scumbags. I think they're literal scumbags. And it's really going to be interesting to see, man, how Sharina and Quentin battle and balance this, this aspect that we get a glimpse of here in these early pages of feeling sorry for Lamar with no legs and the father, but yet still evicting him. It's going to be really interesting, man. I'm really interested in seeing how that unfolded. And the text reads... Sharina parked in front of Lamar's place and reached for a pair of eviction notices. The property sat just off of Wright Street with empty lots and a couple of street memorials for murder victims. Teddy bears, black and mild cigars, and scribbled notes lashed to tree trunks. It was a four-family property consisting of two detached two-story buildings, one directly behind the other. The houses were longer than they were wide, with rough wood balconies painted blue-gray like the trim and vinyl siding that was the brownish-white of leftover milk in a cereal bowl. The house facing the street had two doors, for the upper and lower units, and a pair of wooden steps leading to each, one old with peeling paint, the other new and unvarnished. Lamar lived in the lower unit of the back house which was abutted the alley. When Sharina pulled up, he was outside, being pushed in a wheelchair by Patrice, whose name was on the other eviction notice. He had snapped on his plastic prostated legs 
An elderly black man, Lamar was wiry and youthful from the waist up, with skin the color of wet sand. He had a shaved head and a thin mustache, flecked with gray. He wore a yellow sports jersey with his keys around his neck. Oh, I got two at the same time, Sharita tried to say lightly. She handed Lamar and Patrice their eviction notice. You almost been late, Patrice said. She wore a head wrap, pajama pants, and a white tank top that showed off her tattoo on her right arm, a cross and a ribbon with the names of her three children. At 24, Patrice was half Lamar's age, but her eyes looked older. She and her children lived in the upper unit of the front house. Her mother, Doreen Hinkson, and her three younger siblings lived below her in the bottom floor unit. Patrice creased her eviction notice and jammed it into her pocket. I'm fixing to go to practice, Lamar said from his seat. What practice, Sharina asked. My son's football practice. He looked at the paper in his hand. You know we fixing to do the basement. I'm already started. He didn't tell me about that, Sharina replied. He being quitting. Sometimes tenants worked off the rent by doing odd jobs for landlords like cleaning out basements. You better call me. Don't forget who the boss is, Sharina joked. Lamar smiled back at her. As Patrice began pushing Lamar down the street, Sharina went over a checklist in her head. There were so many things to deal with. Repairs, collections, moves, advertisements, inspectors, social workers, cops. The swirl of work, a million little things regularly interrupted by some big thing, had been encroaching on her Sunday soul food dinners with her mom. Just a month earlier, someone had been shot in one of her properties. A tenant's new boyfriend had taken three pumps to the chest, and blood had run down him like a full-on faucet. After police officer, I asked her their questions and balled up the yellow tape. Sharina and Quentin were stuck with the cleanup. Quentin sat on it with a couple of guys, rubber gloves, and a shop back. Here you come with a boyfriend that I don't know anything about, Sharina asked the tenant. Quentin dealt with the mess. Sharina dealt with the people. That was their arrangement. Then a few days after the shooting, another tenant phoned Sharina to say that her house was being shut down. Sharina didn't believe it until she pulled up and spotted white men in hard hats screwing green boards over the windows. The tenants had been caught stealing electricity, so the We Energy men had disconnected services at the pole, placed a call to the Department of Neighborhood Services, DNS, and the tenants had to be out that day. In Milwaukee and across the nation, most renters were responsible for keeping the lights and heat on. But that had become increasingly difficult to do. Since 2000, the cost of fuels and utilities had risen by more than 50% thanks to increasingly global demand and expiration of price caps. In a typical year, almost one in five poor renting families nationwide Missed payments and received a disconnection notice from the utility company. I want to read that again because I think it's very, very poignant, man. Very, very poignant. Jeez. In a typical year, Almost one in five poor renting families nationwide miss payments and receive a disconnection notice from their utility company. Families who couldn't 
both make rent and keep current with the utility company, sometimes pay the cousin or neighbor to reroute the meter. As much as $6 billion worth of power was pirated across America every year. Only cars and credit cards got stolen more. Stealing gas was much different and rare. It was also unnecessary in the wintertime when the city put a moratorium on disconnections. On that April day when the moratorium lift, gas operators returned to poor neighborhoods with their stacks of disconnection notices and toolboxes. We Energies disconnected roughly 50,000 households each year for non-payment. Many tenants who in the winter stayed current on their rent at the expense of their heating bill tried in the summer to climb back in the black with the utility company for shorting their landlord. Man, you hear that? You hear the game or the, 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 you hear the game that people have to play, man. The hurdles that they have to jump through. So in the wintertime they can fall back and they basically not pay their utilities because they know in the wintertime their stuff can't be disconnected and get caught up on other bills such as their rent. But then when spring comes, what a heartbreaking cycle, family. And the text reads, many tenants who in the winter stay current on their rent at the expense of their heating bill tried in the summer to climb back in the black with the utility company by shorting their landlord. So somebody's getting shorted all year round, whether it's utility company or the landlord. Come the following winter, they had to be connected to benefit from the moratorium on disconnection. So every year in Milwaukee, eviction spiked in the summer and early fall and dipped again in November when the moratorium began. Lord have mercy. Sharina watched the DNS hard hats march around her property. There were a few things that frustrated landlords more than clipboard in hand building inspectors. When they were not shutting down her property, they were scrutinizing apartments for code violations. Upon request, DNS would send a building inspector to any property the service was designed to protect the city's most vulnerable renters from negligent landlords. But to Sharina and other property owners, tenants called for small cosmetic things. And often because they were trying to stop an eviction or retaliate against landlords. Sharina thought about the money she had just lost. A few thousand dollars for electrical work and unpaid rent. She remembered taking a chance on this family. Feeling sorry for the mother who had told Sharina she was trying to leave her abusive boyfriend. Sharina had decided to rent to her and her family, even though the woman had been evicted three times in the past two years. There's me having a heart again, she thought. So that, that, that gives you an idea, fam, of the battle that the landlords are also placing, or they're also fighting. You have this family who the woman is fleeing an abusive relationship, intimate partner of violence, IPV, 
is the term that we like to use instead of domestic violence. Intimate Partner Violence, IPV. She's a victim of IPV. She's trying to flee that. She's trying to look for a spot for her and her kids. And when she goes to apply for a spot at Sharina's spot, Sharina sees that she's been evicted three other times in the past. But she takes a risk on this family because of what she sees. And she gets burnt. She gets burnt, man. And that's what poverty does, man. Lord have mercy. <laughs> and the text reads, Sharina drove off Wright Street and headed north. Since she was in this part of town, she decided to make one more stop. Her duplex on 13th and Keefe. Sharina had let a new tenant move in the previous month with partial rent and security deposit payment. The tenant was sitting on her stoop in a long sleeve flannel shirt, hushing a colicky baby and talking with her mother, who was leaning against the car. Seeing Sharina, the young woman wasted no time. My son is sick because my house is cold, she said. Her voice was tired. The window have a hole in it, and I've been waiting patiently. I mean, I'm ready to move. Sharina tilted her head, confused. The window had a hole, not a crater. And it was warm enough outside that children were still swimming in Lake Michigan. How could the house be cold? I done called the city, the mother added. Peeling herself off the car, she was slender and tall, her hair frizzed by the late summer humidity. Sharina took a breath. There were worse houses on the block, but Sharina knew her place on 13th Street wasn't up to code. Sharina knew her place on 13th Street wasn't up to code. Sharina knew wasn't up to code. She would say almost no house in the city was a... What? She would say almost no house in the city was a commentary on the mismatch between Milwaukee's worn-out housing stock and its exact building code. Thanks to the tenant's mother, an inspector would arrive in a few days. He would jiggle the stair banisters, photograph the hole in the window, shimmy the unhinged front door, every code violation would cost Sharina money. That wasn't right for you to do that, Sharina said, because I was working with her. Then fix the window, the mother replied. We will, but if she don't call us to let us know, she don't have no phone, that's why I called, the mother interrupted. As the conversation grew louder, a crowd gathered. Who's she, a young boy asked. Landlord can reply. I didn't know you were going to call the building inspector, Mama, the tenant said nervously. It's too late now. The damage is done, Sharina said. She shook her head and her hands on her hip, looked at the young woman with the baby. It's always the ones that I try to help that I have the problem out of them. And I'm not saying that you're a problem, but it's just that somebody else is involved. And you're the one living here, so it puts you in a spot. Well, let me ask you something, Attendant's mother stepped closer and she crowded with her. If this was your daughter and those were your grandkids, what would you do? Sharina didn't step back. She looked at the mother, noticing her gold front teeth and answered, I would have definitely made a connection with the landlord and not called the city. Sharina pushed past the crowd and stepped briskly to her car. When she got calm, she opened the door to yell, Quinn, we done walked straight into some bullshit. 
Serena sat down in her paper cluttered home office. The office was one of <laughs> the office was one of the five bedrooms in Serena and Quentin's home, which sat in a quiet middle class black neighborhood off of Capitol Drive. The house had finished basement with an inset jacuzzi tub. Sharina and Quentin had furnished it with beige leather furniture, large brass and crystal light fixtures, and gold-colored curtains. <laughs> the kitchen was spacious and unused since they ate out most days. Typically, the only thing in the refrigerator were restaurant doggy bags. Huh? Quentin called back, coming down the stairs. The girl downstairs at 13th Street. Her mother then called the building inspector. Her mother was out ta outside talking shit. Quentin listened to the story and said, put her out. Sharina thought about it for a minute, then agreed. She reached in her drawer and began filling out a five-day eviction notice. The law forbade landlords from retaliating against tenants who contacted DNS. But landlords could at any time evict tenants for being behind on rent or for any other violation. By the time Quentin and Sharina pulled the Suburban onto 13th Street, night had fallen. Their apartment door was open. Sharina walked right through it without knocking and handed the young tenant an eviction notice saying, Here, I hope you get some assistance. A man followed Sharina out the door and stood on the unlit porch. Excuse me, he called out Sharina as Sharina met Quentin in the street. You evicted her? She told me she wanted to move, so that let me know. She wasn't going to pay anything else. She told you she wanted the windows fixed. Quentin interjected, looking at Sharina. He ain't got nothing to do with it. I got everything to do with the blood. This my stepdaughter here. You don't even stay here, though, man, Quentin yelled back. Ain't nobody want to live like that. Fuck you mean. I don't have nothing to do with it. Quentin opened the suburban's door and pulled out his security belt. Equipped with handcuffs, a small baton, and a canister of mace the size of a small fire extinguisher. Quentin had been here before. There was the tenant who told him he was going to take his security deposit out of Quentin's pocket. There was the one who said he was going to shoot him in the face. The tenant's mother joined the stepfather on the dark porch. Are you evicting her, she asked. She didn't pay her rent, Sharina said. Do y'all have her rent to pay? I don't give a shit, man, the stepfather was saying almost to himself. What he didn't give a shit about wasn't the eviction, but whatever was going to transpire there at that very moment on that dark street. I don't need a Quentin shot back. I'll whip that motherfucker's ass, nigga. Don't say I ain't got nothing to do with it. You don't, Sharina yelled back as Quentin tugged her back to the suburban. You don't. Days after the tenant left, Sharina took a call from a caseworker at a wraparound, a local social services agency. The caseworker had a client who needed a place to live with her two small boys. Wraparound would pay her security deposit and first month's rent, which sounded good to Sharina. The new tenant's name was Arlene Bell. Lord have mercy. Man. This book is already tugging on your boy's heartstrings, man. Already tugging on your heartstrings. Jesus. Man, oh man. My thoughts and prayers, man, are going to be going out to 
all the people, man, who are battling poverty, who are battling just how battling the, the, the need and desire to get over a hump even. They got a little something, but not enough something to get them, to hold them over to the people who are facing evictions. For the people who already, with it being the seventh day of October, most of their check that they get in the first summer is already gone. And in just a few days, they're going to be scrambling, trying to figure out how they're going to make it through the rest of the month. My heart and thoughts and prayers are going to go out to the people who are going to be finding themselves victims and perpetrators of intimate partner violence because of the stress of not having enough to the children who are going to be abused because of the stress and the depression and the, 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 all those other things that come with not having enough. For those people who are going to be again, using drugs and starting addictions and things along those lines and now alcoholism and things along those lines are going to continue because poverty is punching them in the mouth. My heart goes out to them now. This is your boy Elgin Bailey with another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. I thank you guys for being a part of the Page Turners family. Till next time, family. We out.